Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. We are in our series, Milk and Honey, and we're talking about the substance and the sweetness of the story of the Bible. And uh, I'm not going to have you turn into any specific place uh, tonight because I've got a, we're going to cover sort of a lot. Um, but if you have the YouVersion Bible app, all of the notes are there, and uh, there's lots of good stuff in there today. Um, But here's the story that we've been following, sort of the theme of the Bible from start to finish. It's about creation. God spoke, and all of life, all everything that we know began. And then he commissioned. He sent his creation into the world with a job. But then there was a rebellion. They disobeyed God, and that rebellion caused separation between God and humanity. But then God began his process of redemption, of bringing back, restoring what was lost in that story in the garden, which ultimately leads us to a new creation and then a new commission. Now, part of God's plan is to bless, uh, part of God's plan is to bless his world and then rule it through humans. That's sort of like when you go to the beginning, that's sort of the why. God creates the world. He puts humanity in the garden, and his commission to them is to rule it. I've created you to rule over my creation. So in a sense, God wants to rule his world through his creation. And in that setting, they had a choice. They had a choice to either trust God and rule earth based upon God's wisdom or they could ignore God and attempt to rule earth on their, by their own wisdom. So that's the story in the Garden of Eden. You've got the tree in the middle of the garden. God says, don't eat of this. This is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the idea is that you are just supposed to trust God. Trust his wisdom. Trust his infinity. Trust his power. And yet through deception and through disobedience, they decide, do you know what? We want to trust our own wisdom. We want to trust our own experience. We want to do things our own way and rule earth that way. Now, when they do that, when Adam and Eve and the humans begin and do that, this begins a cycle of how humans attempt to rule earth. Not trusting in God, but doing things their own way. Now, part of God's, again, his his desire is to rule his creation through humans. God establishes a nation, but they, the nation, are unable to rule with God's justice. So again, if you're you're thinking about it this way, as God's trying to rule the nation or rule the world through his justice, through his love, through his, his power and his plan, through humans, he creates These people in relationship, they break it. So God's like, okay, we're going to create a nation. And this nation is going to uh, attempt to bring that rule into the world. But they have the same problem as Adam and Eve. They trust in their own strength and their own desire rather than God's. And so God's plan is to bring a person into the world who will represent him, who will redeem the world, and who will rule the world with love and justice. And ultimately, through that person, introduced to us a new way to be human, a way of love, a way of service, and a way of surrender. And so tonight, we're going to conclude the Old Testament. Okay, so we left off with Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. We're in the the era of the kings in the nation of Israel. Um, 
Before we jump in, let me just give you a summary of sort of how the Bible is broken up and then how we're going to follow it. So the Old Testament is broken up into like four segments, okay? So you've got the, the, the narrative, uh, which is uh, Genesis um, through uh, Esther is the narrative. Now it kind of goes back and forth. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles overlap inside of each other. Like they kind of reiterate the story. And then Esther, even though it's at the beginning, Esther goes, like if you read the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 6, insert Esther's story. Okay, and then finish, finish Esther and then follow the rest of Ezra. It's kind of random like that. Um, and then the second sort of segment of the Bible is what we would call, or the Old Testament, would be the, the poetic portion of the Bible. This would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And these all find their space in that narrative story between Genesis and Esther. Are you tracking with me so far? The, the Bible's broken up very kind of, it makes sense, but at the same time, like if you're reading it, it kind of doesn't make sense. Um, in, in fact, the original like, I'm not going to go down that road. Forget it. Forget I just said that sentence. If you want to know, ask me afterwards. Um, so the, the, like Job actually, the book of Job takes place during the time of Abraham. It's in fact, Job is the oldest book in your Bible. So even though it's not first, it's the, it dates back the farthest because he was the, uh, lived with Abraham and Moses wrote Genesis, okay? Tracking with me. We haven't even gotten to the message yet. This is all off the dome, no notes. Um, so then after the, the poetry we get into the prophets. And the prophets is broken up into two uh, groups, major prophets and minor prophets. And the reason they're broken up into those two groups is the major prophets' books are big, the minor prophets' books are small. It's not about significance. It's not like, oh, a major prophet, that's a, he's a real one. No, it's his book. He had a lot to say, and then the minor prophets were. Um, so that's the Old Testament, okay? It's in those, I said four, it's really three and a half, I guess. So you got Genesis through Esther, the narrative, You've got the, the, pro, or the um, poetry, and then you've got the, the prophets. All right. All right. Good night, everybody. I'll see you next week. I'm just kidding. You guys are like, please, for the love of God. Um, so tonight, following that theme, we're going to sort of conclude the Old Testament. Now, my goal in this series has not been to be a necessary Bible study where we talk about the books of the Bible, but to be a story of the Bible series. What is the whole thing about? Because it, it's 66 books, 40 different authors, the whole thing, but it's got one story. What's that story? And so we're following that same line. Where is it going? So last week we talked about the temple. God has a desire to dwell with his creation, to, be, to, to commune, to have relationship with them through the tabernacle or through the Garden of Eden, through the tabernacle, through the temple, and then ultimately through the church, that you are the temple of the living God. And tonight we're going to conclude the Old Testament. And I want us to see what happens. I want to see who are important, the important people involved, and then why it goes down this way. We're going to ask those three questions. We're going to ask what, who, and why. Okay, those are our sort of three points. And my message title is this, the story of everything else. Okay, the story of everything else. The rest of the Old Testament, what's going on? Who, what, who, and why. Let's begin with what. Sound good? What's going on? That should be the question we ask. What is happening in the Bible? From the time of Solomon, what happens next? So this is what happens from the time of Solomon through the beginning of the New Testament. Again, God is bringing his light 
and his presence into the world through humans. Uh, there, look at this timeline. I've got a slide up here that shows the timeline of the whole Old Testament into the New. We're not going to go into all of it. We've sort of covered a lot of it. But notice Israel's monarchy began right there in the middle. That's David, right? We talked about King David. We talked about King Solomon. Now something happens. There's a division of the kingdom. David doesn't do a great job of delegating and deciding who's going to be sort of his uh, uh, predecessors. Is that the right word? People that come after him. Um, and so the kingdom is divided. It's divided into two parts. There's a northern kingdom and then there's a southern kingdom. Would you put up that next slide real quick? Um, so you've got the United Kings. Uh, and the, Saul, David, and Solomon were the only ones that really ruled the whole nation of Israel. Then the, the nation split in half. Eleven of the tribes of Israel were known as the, the uh, uh, northern kings. And then one tribe, the tribe of Judah, was the southern kingdom. They were in Jerusalem, and the Bible mostly focuses on the southern kingdom. But it was divided into two parts. Now notice, these are all the kings, uh, their name. Every single northern king was evil. <laughs> and in fact, the, the, the reason, what it says, is they did what was right in their own eyes. Rather than trusting God's wisdom and doing things God's way, think Garden of Eden... They instead decided to do things their own ways, following their own feelings, their own desires, their own wants and needs. Now, the southern kings, you've got a mixture. It's about half, a little bit more than half were evil and the rest good. But we've got some good guys in the southern kingdom. Now, go back to that other slide. Sorry, uh, the timeline one. So after the, the nation is divided, ultimately, it is, uh, they are led into captivity. So uh, the, the, sorry, go back to the other slide. I'm so sorry. You guys tracking with me so far? Last week, I told you that it was interesting. You just had to go with me, and it would be interesting. This week's not so interesting. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, this is like history class. It'll get, I've got some really interesting things for us, but just to put all my cards out there, it's not that exciting. We're just talking about the Bible. But that's okay. Church can be, like, helpful. <laughs> Um, okay, so you got the United Kings. <laughs> Somebody's like, who is this guy? Um, United Kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and then the Southern king Kings and the Northern Kings. Because of disobedience, now notice at the end of both of these lists, you've got evil kings, right? These kings did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't represent God to the people. They didn't lead the nation. When the kings were corrupt, the people were corrupt, the, the people would follow their leadership. When David was in charge, the people worshipped God. God uh, David made prayer and worship the center of the nation, and the people followed. But when the kings were evil, the people followed. They did the same thing. They did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, the, the nation that was designed to be a light to the world began to look like everybody else around them. And there's a warning to us that if we're not following Jesus, if we're not making him our aim, it is so easy for us to lose our witness and begin to look like the world around us. We just start behaving and acting and, and doing what everybody else is doing. So that's what's happening here in Israel. And so ultimately, God, because of their disobedience, he judges them. He deals with them. And both southern and northern are destroyed and they're taken into captivity. The southern kings are taken into Babylon. And then the northern kings or the northern kingdom is taken to Assyria. 
Now, from there, we get into the prophets in the Bible. Would you throw up that third slide about prophets? Now, the prophets, remember I talked about the, the Bible's broken up that way, that all of the stuff on the kings can be found in 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But then it gets the whole portion of your Bible is just prophets. And there's a bunch of weird names. Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea. Like, to be honest with you, like, how many of you guys have actually read Haggai? Nobody's read Haggai. Like, what is happening there? Like, let's just be honest. Um, so what's going on with these guys? Now, it's broken up into three parts, these prophets. Pre-exilic, that means before the exile, before they were taken into either Babylon or Syria. Exilic, during the exile, while they were in Babylon or Assyria. And then post-exilic, after they've returned. Are you tracking with me? So we've got these characters, and that's sort of where they fit in that. Uh, so, so following the story, the kings did what was right in their own eyes. They're taken into captivity. Uh, you follow some that go to Babylon, some to go to Assyria, some stay in the land, and you follow this whole story. Now, from that, after a period of about 150 years, when the people of Israel are enslaved to the Babylonians, you guys know the character Daniel? Daniel in the Bible. Daniel was one of the people that was taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and he lived in Babylon, right? And he gets a Babylonian name, and uh, he has this whole story there. We'll talk about him in a moment. Now, Babylon was ultimately conquered by Persia. Persia took Babylon. And then, about 150 years after that time, after the fall, um, God uses a guy named Zerubbabel, and then Ezra and Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem. So they're in exile. Imagine this time period, 150 years. God sends a group of people back to Jerusalem to then first settle in the land. Then to begin to rebuild the temple. And then finally rebuild the city walls around the city of Jerusalem. Now, Persia, who conquered Babylon, sends these guys, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, back to build. And then Persia starts a new political strategy where they rule from afar. This is important as we move into the New Testament, okay? That's why I'm telling you this. You're like, why does this matter? Persia, basically, rather than taking everyone to Persia, they basically set up government in a other lands, existing lands, where Persian rule would happen in those lands. So you've got Israel or Jerusalem being ruled by Persia. Does that make sense? They would have a Persian governor, and they would do this whole thing. Now, the Persians allowed the people of Israel to live in the land, to have religious freedom, uh, to basically have their own way of living and life, but they all they sort of paid taxes and followed Persian ultimate authority. Now, this is important because if, uh, a few decades later, you've got Alexander the Great with Greece conquering Persia, and it allows the same thing to happen for the Israelites. They're able to stay in Jerusalem. In fact, Alexander the Great had an encounter with the high priest of Israel, and he, he gave them total religious freedom because he had this spiritual encounter with them. And then fast forward again to the Romans when they conquered Greece, they had the same sort of format where Rome ruled from afar. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because when we get to the New Testament, when we meet Jesus, that's what's happening. Right? There's Roman occupancy. They're living in Israel. They have religious freedom, but it's limited. And then ultimately that comes to a fever pitch when they rebel against the Romans and they destroy the temple and the whole thing in 70 AD. Tracking with me. You sure? You're good. 
All right, I'm just helping. I'm just trying to be helpful. I'm just trying to make you be like, okay, I see what's going on in the Bible. Because sometimes you open it up and you're like in Haggai and you're like, what in the world is going on? You're like, why am I in Haggai? Um, so that's what's happening. Okay, so that's the what. So you go from Solomon all the way to exile. Exile then leads them back into the city with guys like Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, where they begin to settle. Then you get the Persians, you get the Greeks, and then ultimately the Romans. And then we've got the timeline of Jesus. That's what happens. That's the what in the rest of the Old Testament. Now the who. All right, point number two, the who. These are the key people during this time. They're the ones that, that keep the story moving. They keep the heart of God, and they help people continue to follow God even in the midst of that. Because some people are living in with the, the anticipation of destruction. Some people are living in exile. Some people are living in rubble. And so how do we follow God in all of those things? So there's four important characters that I want us to look at. Number one is Isaiah and Jeremiah. I put those two together. And they teach us about the word of God over popularity. Isaiah and Jeremiah teaches about the word of God that is more important than popularity. Now, these are two of the prophets that serve God and announce to the world God's word. And they serve him before the exile as a warning and then into the exile as a voice of hope. Jeremiah, if you throw that uh, prophet slide back up there, I'm sorry, is it? Jackson back there, you're doing a great job. Um, you see Jeremiah is down at the bottom as a pre-exilic and an exilic prophet. So he writes about the coming destruction, but then he also writes after the destruction has happened. Listen to a couple things that say, they say. This is Isaiah. He's pre-exilic. He's talking about the destruction coming. He says, oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil. Uh, they are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. This is what Israel's doing. They've rejected God. They're doing their own thing. And as a result, destruction's coming. But then he encourages the people in the same chapter. He says, wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans and fight for the rights of widows. In other words, Isaiah says, hey, destruction's coming. But if you turn to God, if you stop your evil ways, you can actually prevent that from happening. Now, Jeremiah's message is similar, but he's also a beacon of hope while they're in exile because the people of God don't listen. They ignore the voice of the prophets, right? That's like when, when, when the pastor's up here and he's like, hey, God's way is so much better than your own way. And you're like, yeah, that probably works for you, but I'm going to do things my own way. Thanks for the information, but I'm not going to apply that. And then you ignore and you ignore and you ignore and then you wreck your life. And you're like, ah, oh, why didn't anybody tell me? And you're like, didn't you listen to that guy that rambled on about Israel's history telling you that God's plan is way better than your own plan? Like, it, when you ignore the voice of God, ultimately, it wrecks your life. And, and so it happened. They ignored Isaiah. It wrecks their life. But then listen to what Jeremiah says to them. They're in exile. They've been destroyed. They've been taken off, led away, watched family members and loved ones die. It says, this is what the Lord says. You will be ba in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come. And do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. Listen, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans of good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. He says, okay, you've disobeyed me. You, you've rebelled against me. 
but I know the plans I have for you. It, there's, it, it seems like there's no way out. It seems like I'm hopeless and it's broken. I'm just going to be stuck here. I'm going to die in Babylon. He says, no, I'm going to bring you home. You're going to be settled again. Listen, they teach us, Isaiah and Jeremiah teach us the importance of obedience to God and speaking God's word even when it isn't popular. Listen, these guys teach us the importance of obedience to God's word. We need to listen to God's word. But then also, once God's word gets in your heart, you need to speak it. You need to encourage your friends. You need to talk to your friends. You need to tell them, hey, God's way is better than our own way. We shouldn't do our own things, even when it isn't popular. Have you ever felt like the Christian thing to do wasn't the easiest thing to do? Like, man, it would be so much easier to just do what everybody else is doing. But listen, doing the right thing is always the right thing, even when it isn't the easiest thing. And they teach us that. Number two, a second character that's super important in the Old Testament is the character Daniel. And Daniel teaches us to serve God wherever we find ourselves. Now, after the nations are taken into captivity, we follow a few characters. Ezekiel is in Judah after the captivity of Babylon. So if you read the book of Ezekiel, uh, imagine, okay, so the story in Daniel gives us a little bit of insight. So Babylon comes and he conquers, they conquer the nation. Nebuchadnezzar is like a bad dude and he just shows up and he wipes people out. And then he looks at all of the people of Israel and he takes all of the handsome, smart, pretty, uh, and capable people and he brings them to Babylon and Daniel goes with them. All of the ugly and awkward and like whatever people, they stay. Ezekiel stays there. Get the picture? Like Ezekiel's like, you're staying there. So Ezekiel is a prophet in exile, but he's in uh, the land, and he's speaking to the people. Now Daniel, we follow mostly Daniel, and Daniel goes to Babylon. There, Daniel decides that even in the midst of captivity, he's going to be committed to God. Listen to this verse, Daniel 1a, it says this, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. And he asked the chief of staff permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Another, the, another translation says he purposed in his heart. In other words, he decided regardless of what's going on around him, he's going to trust in God and he's going to do what God wants him to do. And because of that, because of that decision that was countercultural, that decision that made no sense sort of on paper. Daniel rises in the ranks of Babylon. He's one of the leaders that influences the nation. And he has direct access with the king of Babylon. And Daniel teaches us, listen to me, the power of serving God wherever you find yourself. Whether you're in a palace, in a prison, in a lion's den, or a prayer room, God wants to use your life. Daniel teaches us that we can serve God with what we've been given and where we are. And when you do things with excellence, it's to the glory of God. Have you ever felt like you weren't doing enough for God because you were busy with regular things? You ever felt like that? Like, man, I wish I could pray more, but I've I gotta go to school. Like, I wish I could serve in church more, but I've got so much stuff going on with sports or with work or with family. And I just feel like all of these, quote, unquote, regular things are keeping me from being able to do godly things. And what Daniel teaches us is that when you're committed to God, you can do regular things as an act of worship to God. That we don't have to separate school and the spiritual life. You don't have to separate going to work or, or being on your sports team and going to church on Thursday night. 
you actually can view those things as all an act of service and glory to God. And Daniel teaches us that wherever you find yourself, if you're, if you're living in ba Babylon and you work for the king and they're totally anti-God, but you're committed to God, God's going to use that for his glory. All right, number three. You guys still with me? Yes. It's making sense? Yes. All right, number three, we're introduced to a character named Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And he teaches us about being a piece of the puzzle or a part of the body. Now, after 150 years in captivity... Persia sends a group of people back to Israel to occupy the land. Again, they're under Persian control, but they can live in the land. And a character named Zerubbabel goes back with a group of about 42,000 people to settle in the land. Okay, so Persia's like, okay, you guys can go. It's rubble. You guys can go live there. And so Zerubbabel and these 42,000, they go, and they basically, in the rubble, after the destruction, they just start building houses, and they begin to settle down. Now, there's a pause there for about, uh, it's about 60 years, but then Ezra comes later. Ezra shows up to Jerusalem. There's people living there, and he goes back with the goal to uh, uh, build the temple. Remember we talked about the temple last week? The temple was destroyed in the captivity to the Babylonians. So Ezra goes back to build the temple. And then Nehemiah, a little while later, after he hears about how things are going and how the temple's not really being built the way they're hoping, he's brokenhearted, he's living in Persia. And then the Persian king actually sends Nehemiah back to go then build the walls around Jerusalem. These guys, the reason I'm telling you all that is because these guys have a simple role. It takes a long time, and they only do a little bit and yet God uses them. In fact, when Ezra finishes the temple, so they, they rebuild the temple, we're told that the older people who were alive that had seen the other temple, they would have been little kids at the time, they had seen the other temple, the, the one that Solomon had built, they weep because it isn't as nice or glorious as the old one. They're like, ah, this, is, this is it? Like we saw Solomon's temple. This thing is... It's kind of lousy. And they weep because of the result. So these people, that even though it seems, like they, 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 it seems like they don't do a lot, God still honors them and uses them in a major way. And they teach us that we're called uh, to just be a part of what God is doing, not the whole thing. In fact, this second temple will be more glorious through the building of Herod. And then more than that, because Jesus will perform miracles in Ezra's temple. So all these old people that are like, oh, Solomon's temple was so much better. Ezra's temple, Jesus is going to walk through. Ezra's temple, Jesus is going to heal blind people on the steps. Ezra's temple, uh, the church is going to begin. So they thought, oh, it wasn't as glorious. It was far more glorious. They just couldn't see it. They just didn't know what God was doing at the time. The Bible says that we are a part of the body of Christ. And the body is healthiest not when one person does everything, but when everyone does something. Listen to me. You are a part of the body of Christ. God is, Christ is the head. We're the torso. We're the body. And we each have a different part, a different piece to play in what God is doing. And the body is the healthiest when every part is doing its job, right? Your body, it suffers like when, when your back hurts. Your whole body suffers. 
your, your body suffers when, when you've got like a soreness in your chest or in your lungs or, or, or when your toe, like you ever hurt your big toe? Like your whole life is ruined from your big toe. Like how is that such a big deal? Like I don't get it. But because your whole body is healthiest when every part's doing its job. What are you doing for the church? That's the question. How are you serving the body of Christ? Okay, number four. You guys still with me? I'm almost done. And then next week we're going to start talking about Jesus. It's going to be amazing. All right. Number four, um, Esther. We're introduced to Esther. Esther teaches us to use our platform and influence to reach others. Now, Esther's story, again, is unique because chronologically it happens after chapter 6 of Ezra. And she's in Persia. And Esther's story is unique because basically she wins a beauty contest and then becomes the queen of Persia as a Jew. That's how the story works, right? The, the Persian king is like emo and he gets mad at his wife and he divorces her and then he's all sad and lonely because he divorced his wife and he's like I've made a huge mistake for divorcing my wife um, and then but all of the leaders are like well you can't get back with her that would make you look so weak and you just need to find a new wife so we're gonna host the original like bachelor that's what's happening bachelor's happening you're you're the most eligible bachelor and we're gonna just get all of the women in the land to just basically you're gonna pick one so Esther unfortunately wins this beauty contest. And I say unfortunately because I think like Disney and like Hollywood like romanticize this story. It probably would have been terrible. Like think about thousands of years ago how women were treated, especially by people in power. And then this woman is chosen to now be the new wife. You have no say in the matter. You're now the king's wife and you're going to have to do everything that he asks you to do. So Esther wins this beauty contest. And then from that, as the story unfolds, you see that there's all this shady, weird stuff happening behind the scenes. And there's this character that works for the king that hates Jews and wants to eliminate all the Jews. And so he begins to set up his plan on how he can kill all the Jews. And then what happens is Esther's uncle, a guy named Mordecai, says to her, like, actually, I think God wants to use your life to save the Jews. Listen to this verse. This is Esther chapter 4. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. He says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. And then listen to this. This is so good. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. But who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. He basically says God is going to save his people. That's what he does. God's going to show up. This random dude, Haman, with a bad attitude that hates Jews, isn't going to win. Right? Pharaoh tried to do it. <laughs> Herod's going to try to do it. Uh, uh, Hitler tried to do it. Like People have tried to eliminate Jews. Deliverance will show up. And Mordecai says to Esther, maybe God wants to use your life and your platform to save the Jews today. And Esther teaches us to use our platform to reach others with hope and salvation. Have you ever wondered how God could use your life? What gifting has he given me? What rooms has he given me access to? Only you have those followers. 
Only you have those giftings. Only you have that access. God has placed you for such a time as this. And Esther teaches us that even when it's awkward, even when it's challenging, even when it seems like it's going to make no sense, God wants to use your life, your space, your platform for his glory. So that concludes the narrative of the Old Testament. Now, again, we follow it. uh, It goes into what we call the 400 years of silence. So at the end of the Old Testament, when the last book is written, 400 years go by and, and essentially nothing happens. There's no prophets. There's no major things. But in that time, that's when Alexander the Great uh, with Greece shows up, and then Rome shows up, and then ultimately we are introduced to Jesus. Okay, so last question, why? Why does this happen? We'll go through this quickly. Why does God cause judgment? Why does God send them into exile? Why does God abandon basically the nation altogether, in a sense? The reason is because they're not obeying God's commands, They're not fulfilling God's plans, and they're not being a light to the world. The reason is because the nation as a whole, they're not obeying God, they're not fulfilling his plans, and they're not being a light to the world. And Jesus comes into the world to do those things. Jesus shows up to introduce us to God in a personal way and to show us a new way to be human. Jesus shows up and does a couple things real quickly. Number one, Jesus comes to fulfill the old covenant. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, don't misunderstand uh, why I have come. He says, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. Jesus shows up to fulfill, to complete what God had began. All the promises to Abraham, when you go all the way back to Genesis, are fulfilled in Jesus. And all of the goals of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. God kept his promise from the beginning. They would be a nation. They would have a land. They would bless all nations. And Jesus would be the fulfillment of the promise to bless all nations. So that covenant or contract was completed in the Old Testament. And now he's bringing in a new way. Secondly, Jesus comes to to perfectly fulfill God's plans. Listen to John chapter 14. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Uh, uh, Just believe that I, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the works that you've seen me do. Jesus perfectly fulfills the plans of God. Jesus is the very embodiment of God and his word. Here he is to show us what life is like. Romans chapter 3 says it like this. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That's the Jesus shows up to complete. Completely fulfill God's plans. And then finally, I thought that was funny too. Number three, Jesus comes to be the light of the world and send his followers um, of lights to the world. Okay, Jesus came to be the light of the world and then to send his followers as lights to the world. Final verses, John chapter 8. Jesus spoke to the people once more, listen, and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. 
And then Jesus says also in Matthew chapter 5, ready? You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it is given, a, uh, given light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus comes to fulfill the law. Jesus comes to perfectly walk out God's plans. And Jesus comes to be the light of the world and then send us as the light of the world. So as we conclude the Old Testament, we're about to break to groups. I'm actually ahead of time, so you guys are like, how does he do that? I don't know. Um, I did it. But uh, <laughs> God fulfills his plans. There's not an abandonment. It's all leading towards Jesus. But the, the Old Testament, as we conclude it, we see our desperate need for Jesus. That's one of the things. The king couldn't do it. The prophets couldn't do it. The nation couldn't do it. The priests couldn't do it over and over. And so what do we have? Well, we have a king who is priest, who is servant, who has made himself known to us so that we might have life in him and that we can see the way that God wants us to have relationship with him. And so as we conclude the Old Testament, that's sort of what's going on. But then it also leaves us with an ache for Christ, right? Like if we just close the book, you know, if we didn't end it with the time with, with Jesus, like I just closed the message, like, and you just go like, oh, they're all in exile. <laughs> they built this like okay temple. <laughs> like you're just like, oh man, this is pathetic. Like we need something more. And that's the point. Like there's an ache. We need something more. And then God sends Jesus in the world to be what the world 